Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, the renowned Rhetor, Lactantius and the Christian Imperial Narrative. There are some important figures in the 4th century that we haven't really had a chance to talk about just because they never really take center stage in the Christological controversy. We are now going to take a look at one of those figures, Lucius Caecilius Fermianus Senio Lactantius, known to history more simply as just Lactantius. Lactantius was born sometime in the mid-200s, probably around 250. He lived in North Africa and was probably either Punic or Berber by ethnicity. He was massively talented, particularly in rhetoric, or the art of public speaking. Public speaking was big money in those days. Rhetors could work in law courts, schools, and public office. Some of you may know that St. Augustine, that titan of early Christianity, began his career as a teacher of rhetoric. Lactantius rode his skills to high positions all throughout the empire, ultimately moving all the way to the eastern imperial capital of Nicomedia at the Emperor Diocletian's personal request. Of course, this favor would not last once Diocletian began the Great Persecution, and Lactantius fell into poverty until Constantine became his personal patron. Then Lactantius became the tutor to Crispin, Constantine's oldest and for a long time favorite son, and may have had a role in educating Constantine's other sons as well. It's fortunate that we have his works preserved because Lactantius was nothing short of a literary genius. Everyone, even his most ardent critics, recognized that in style of Latin he had no equal. In fact, he was often referred to as the Christian Cicero, due to the poise and precision of his arguments. It was a reference to Cicero, that most famous of orators in the last days of the Roman Republic. Now, there are a couple of key works Lactantius wrote that we're going to take a look at today. The first one is called, rather fittingly, About the Deaths of the Persecutors, because it is, well, about the deaths of all the emperors who persecuted Christianity. They weren't really big on creative book titles in antiquity. The book is addressed to someone named Donatus, about whom we know absolutely nothing. No relation to the Donatist heresies that will come later in the 4th century. Lactantius opens by telling his addressee that, hey, life is pretty great now because God has cast down all of the evil emperors who were persecuting the church. And wouldn't it help everyone feel good if Lactantius just wrote a little book about all the painful and embarrassing ways the persecutors of the church died? So that's what he did. He gives us a very quick account of the early emperors who persecuted the church in its first three centuries before moving on to the main topic, the Great Persecution recently ended with the ascension of Constantine to the throne. This book is one of the most important sources we have about the Great Persecution. Because Lactantius was so very close to the imperial court during the early 300s, remember Diocletian had invited him there, he is considered to be one of the most informed narrators about what happened in the imperial court during those days. 
informed does not mean unbiased, though, and Lactantius is not at all shy about giving us his unvarnished opinions about each and every one of the emperors in the Tetrarchy. Here's a quick rundown of his feelings. Maximian was greedy and lustful, constantly deflowering young men and women, and demanding more taxes from the people to sate his appetites. He was also quite bloodthirsty. Constantius I was alright, though, and so Lactantius very quickly moves on to the rest of them. Here is the first sentence of his description of Diocletian, and I quote, While Diocletian, that author of ill and divisor of misery, was ruining all things, he could not withhold his insults, not even against God. End quote. As you might imagine, he is not exactly complimentary of Diocletian's reign. As far as Lactantius is concerned, Diocletian was just the worst. Chief among his sins are avarice and cowardice. Diocletian was greedy, constantly increasing taxes throughout the empire to pay for his massive building projects, all because he wanted to make Nicomedia the equal of Rome. I don't know if Lactantius was salty about this because... As a Latin-speaking Roman from the west of the empire, he still thought of Rome as the capital city, or if he just thought Diocletian's spending was dumb when there was already a perfectly good imperial capital in Rome that he could be using. But more curiously, Lactantius paints Diocletian as a coward. On his account, Diocletian was the kind of person who could talk a big game, but didn't want to take any criticism for unpopular decisions. So he would make it sound like his controversial ideas were actually other people's decisions. Or he would wait to move until another emperor had already made the suggestion. You may remember from way back in episode 5, when I mentioned that some people said that the Great Persecution was actually Galerius's idea, not Diocletian's. Lactantius is the main source of that idea. According to him, Diocletian was so worried about the future that he was constantly paying oracles to tell him prophecies so he could be prepared for it. A few Christian servants one day made the sign of the cross in the middle of the rites, and that messed everything up. Diocletian was so furious that he purged all the Christians from his household. But then it was Galerius who stoked his rage until it turned into the Great Persecution. You can imagine from that that Lactantius was not a fan of Galerius, and you would be right. Diocletian may have been the worst, but Galerius was the very worst. Worst of all four emperors in the Tetrarchy, worst of all the Roman emperors from the beginning of the empire. In fact, he's not even a real Roman because his mother was from modern-day Germany, and that made him part barbarian. Lactantius's casual racism is a good reminder of how ancient prejudices were both similar and different to those of today. Prejudice in the empire really didn't fall along lines of skin color. In fact, there were several Roman emperors who had black skin. When somebody is getting criticized for being too German, you can guess that the Romans really didn't care whether you were white or not. Instead, the boundary of prejudice was between the empire and the frontier. It was about the civilized denizens of the empire versus the barbarians outside. That's the kind of racism that Lactantius is employing here to criticize Galerius. But for Lactantius, Galerius's origins 
were merely the dressing on the top of his salad of suck. There were so many other reasons he was terrible, and Lactantius rushes on from his casual racism to get into those. He was fat. Actually, Lactantius describes him as swollen to a horrible bulk of corpulency, which certainly wins points for style. Galerius was also obscenely ambitious, clamoring after rulership of the whole empire from day one. The worst thing about Galerius, though, was that his heart was two sizes too small. With apologies to Dr. Seuss, that is kind of what Lactantius thinks, because Galerius hated the Christians. Hated, 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 hated them. Why? Mommy issues. Apparently, Galerius's mother was a pagan priestess who hated the Christians and kept nagging her son until he hated them so much that he tried to destroy them too. That's right. The Road to Nicaea is apparently brought to you by Mommy Issues. Come on in, friend. You look troubled. Why don't you sit down on this nice couch I have while I puff thoughtfully on my cigar? And just say whatever comes to mind. Oh, don't, don't worry about making sense. Just say whatever comes to mind, starting with the most embarrassing part first, until you find something that I find some way to connect to Oedipus Rex. Mommy issues, making life rich and psychiatrists even richer since the beginning of Homo sapiens. And with those mommy issues began the Great Persecution. I won't recount all the details Lactantius gives, because we already went over that back in episode 5. Feel free to go back and give that a listen if you need a refresher. But do note that Lactantius goes into great detail about the palace intrigues during this time. He goes so far as to give us back-and-forth verbatim transcripts of dialogue between Diocletian and Galerius. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that Lactantius was present for those conversations, but it does mean that he is claiming to have a very high degree of familiarity with the inner workings of Diocletian's court. Now this puts ancient historians in kind of a tricky position. We don't have a lot of this kind of evidence anywhere, which makes Lactantius' testimony precious. Nobody else is going and writing down these kinds of events. But we also have no way of verifying his claims, and as we've already seen, he's kind of a biased source. I am personally agnostic as to the truth of Lactantius's account. He does get the public facts of the Great Persecution basically right. That doesn't automatically make everything he says about court politics true. He very much wants us to believe how awful all the emperors in the Tetrarchy, except Constantius I, were. And he's going to recount the events in a way that supports that narrative. Not necessarily because he is trying to be biased, although that's possible, but because he cannot help but tell history from his own particular vantage point. Now, after recounting the history of the changing Tetrarchy, Lactantius finally gets to the title matter, how the persecutors died. First to go was Galerius. He had some kind of ulcer that began near his genitals and spread over almost his whole body, it might have been gangrene or bowel cancer, we aren't sure which. Lactantius then goes into quite a bit of detail about how the pagan doctors of Asclepius and Apollo tried and failed to cure Galerius. That may sound like gloating to you, 
I suspect that what Lactantius is actually trying to do is make a theological point about the insufficiency of pagan gods. Remember, this is ultimately a treatise about how God protects the church. And so Asclepius and Apollo can't protect Galerius that way. They can't cure him. That power belongs with the true God, the one Galerius has been persecuting. Now on his deathbed, Galerius does sign an edict of toleration for the Christians, but that was not enough to change his fate. He died a few days later. Maximian, and then his son Maxentius, exit the story in basically the same way as we saw in earlier episodes. You remember, Maximian lets his son Maxentius take over, then decides he wants to come out of retirement, tries to rally his own troops against his own son, gets beaten, then tries the same trick again, then finally gets killed by Constantine, who's had quite enough of his nonsense. And then Licinius, that old frenemy of Constantine, meets his end on the battlefield as well. The only persecutor whose death is not described in detail is Diocletian. Lactantius tells us that Diocletian resigned his emperorship in part due to failing health, but after that makes no real mention of him. You might think it odd that Lactantius didn't go into gory details for the uber-persecutor and ruiner of the empire. Ancient historians definitely think it odd because they have been trying to figure out exactly when and how Diocletian died ever since. Nobody really tells us. The whole thing really only makes sense if you consider Lactantius's theological aims. Despite the title of the book, it's not really just a story about how some persecutors ate it. It's a story about divine providence. God is always looking out for the church, and even when it seems like the bad guys have the upper hand, God will always act to vindicate the faithful. That's what Lactantius is trying to prove. And for that, it was enough for Diocletian to just be shuffled off the world stage and for his persecution to fail. That made Lactantius's point. But that doesn't mean Lactantius is going to be magnanimous about this whole thing. We've already seen him engage in racism, cruel insults, and gleeful descriptions of his enemies' suffering. If this is how Christians talk, then they don't exactly come off looking great here, do they? It might make you wonder what Lactantius's deal was, and why, like Tertullian before him, he can seem so mean. Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. Probably the most important one is that Lactantius is following the conventions of classic Roman rhetoric. Remember, he's a trained public speaker and has been taught the art of making an appeal in the classical Roman fashion. And in that time and place, biting insults were considered funny and appealing by his audiences. It was part of what a good public speaker was supposed to do. Probably the closest analogy to this is the late night comic, who is supposed to satirize politicians and point out their foibles, often with quite a bit of bite. But you might think that Lactantius is still going a bit too far. It's one thing to mock or poke fun at those in power, it's another thing to gloat over their deaths. Which is why I also think that it's important to read this work as an instance of trauma literature. The impact of the Great Persecution was deep and universal. And while only a small fraction of Christians actually died, many more knew someone who had died. And though I have skipped over it here, 
Lactantius records the gruesome persecutions wrought by Galerius in great detail. The rage and spite that Lactantius evinces, while inexcusable, is more understandable in this context. Perhaps Lactantius had lost friends to the persecutors. Perhaps he felt keenly the outrage against those emperors who had cast a pall of fear across the church that would last for generations. Right or wrong, trauma can do this. Trauma does this all the time. And our sympathy for those Christians who have been traumatized, as with all those who have been traumatized throughout history, has to include this kind of aggression that is so often left in its wake. We have to recognize that as part of it as well. But it's also important to recognize the legacy of this trauma in Lactantius, because Lactantius isn't just some guy. He is the tutor to Constantine's children. Crispin studied with him, and Constantius probably had some exposure to him as well. So his version of history is the one that would be passed down through the imperial line. They would learn to take that traumatized view of history and of the emperors who came before. This is how they saw the successors to their line, and this is how they saw God. As a God who punished persecutors and rewards those rulers who take concern for the church. Now, versions of this theology appear across history. Martin Luther attacked a version of this in his own day as the theology of glory. Nowadays, we often call similar beliefs the prosperity gospel. In each case, the fundamental belief is that fidelity to God is going to result in some kind of external success or vindication, whether that's political power, mental well-being, monetary success, seeing your enemies die and the church flourish, or whatever else it might be. Now, it can be easy to write all of this off as a perversion of true or proper theology, and I certainly think it is that, but if that's all we said, it would let the church off the hook too easily. Christians need to have serious conversations about why we are so vulnerable to this kind of thinking in so many different times and places. Now, this is ultimately a podcast about Christology, so you may be curious what Lactantius believed about Jesus Christ and about the Trinity. After all, he lives during the early phases of this Christological controversy, so what school did he fall into? Was he a staunch homoousian, or was he more a friend of the Eusebii? Perhaps he was one of the precious few defenders of Marcellus of Ancyra. The answer, actually, is none of the above. Lactantius actually fell into a different kind of Christology that merged the Son and the Spirit together. The best place to observe his Christology in action is in another one of his works, called the Divine Institutes. This is Lactantius's work of pop theology, similar in style and audience to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity or Tim Keller's The Reason for God. These sorts of works were fairly common in the period. We've already seen that Eusebius of Caesarea probably ghostwrote one for Constantine. And they all followed a similar structure. You started off by talking about how there was one god who had made heaven and earth, and that was just a pretty fantastic thing. But far less fantastic was that 
nobody worshipped this one true God. Instead, they had all turned to worshipping false deities. You then compared the Greek philosophers and the myths of the Greek poets to the law of the Old Testament, and you noted that the Greeks had some pretty good points, and, you know, they kind of got the message even with their paganism at all, but it was much more clearly expressed in the Bible. Then you pointed out that God had made himself even more clearly known by sending Jesus. And now we all get to worship the true God, who has blessed us with peace and prosperity in a unified empire. Yay! That's the basic plot, and there's a lot we could unpack about this, but right now we're just going to focus on what Lactantius has to say about who Jesus is, because it is interesting. Here is how Lactantius introduces the topic, and I quote, God, therefore, the contriver and founder of all things, begot a pure and incorruptible spirit whom he called his son. And although he had afterwards created by himself innumerable other beings whom we call angels, this first begotten, however, was the only one whom he considered worthy of being called by the divine name, as being powerful in his father's excellence and majesty. But that there is a son of the Most High God who is possessed of the greatest power is shown not only by the unanimous utterances of the prophets, but also by the declaration of Trismegistus and the predictions of the Sibyls. Hermes, in the book which is entitled The Perfect Word, makes use of these words. End quote. If you are confused, then you are not alone. Lactantius describes the sun as being a spirit. What then makes the sun different from the Holy Spirit? Well, not much. In fact, most scholars describe Lactantius as a binatarian, not a trinitarian. He seems to believe in the Father and the Son, but doesn't really think of the Spirit as a separate person. Instead, that Spirit breathed out by God is God's Son, who becomes incarnate in Jesus. The technical term for this is Spirit Christology. In other words, a Christ who is the Spirit incarnate. You may be wondering as well what makes the sun different from the angels. After all, Lactantius mentions the creation of angels in almost the same breath as the sun. So does that mean he thinks the sun is just a particularly big and impressive angel? Well, yes and no. Lactantius likes to play on the fact that the Latin term spiritus means both spirit and breath. And so he describes the sun and the angels as both breathed out from God, but not in the same way. Lactantius says that breath proceeds from the nostrils, but speech comes from the mouth. This does make you wonder how Lactantius breathed when he had a cold, but that's beside the point. The point is, while angels are a product of God's breath, they do not have speech. Only Jesus has speech because only he is breathed out as speech through God's mouth rather than the nose. And that's why Jesus alone is called the Word. He communicates God's thoughts and intentions in a way no other being can. Lactantius was not above a good pastor joke when the opportunity presented itself. Now, it's not at all clear to me how Lactantius thinks all of this is supposed to work, it all sounds very materialistic, as if God is literally breathing out spirits up in heaven. But Lactantius is also clear that God does not reproduce by copulation, because only animals with bodies do that. 
and it seems like he's implying that God is bodiless. But a bodiless God can't literally breathe out any more than copulate. Yet Lactantius sticks really close to this analogy, so much so that it's hard to see how it's working unless he means it kind of literally. And even Lactantius's fellow Christians tended to agree there was something a little odd about the way he presented Christian doctrines. In fact, St. Jerome most famously said of him, Lactantius has a flow of eloquence worthy of Tully. Would that he had been as ready to teach our doctrines as to pull down those of others. The other interesting thing to note about this passage is that Lactantius appeals to both the Bible and pagan oracles for support. That Hermes that he mentioned at the end of the passage we read? That's Hermes Trismegistus, a legendary mystical figure who supposedly authored a whole bunch of mystical, esoteric texts and stuff. Hermes was the hero of a complete alternate religious system to Christianity, and yet Lactantius is here conscripting him to be a spokesperson for Christ. This is a case study in the fusion of Christianity with Hellenistic culture. This is how Lactantius says that the best of Roman culture is preserved and purified in Christianity, and that Greek and Roman culture itself pointed to Christ. That's a very common move in these kinds of pop theology, and extremely important if Christianity is going to be the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, Lactantius will take a lot of flack for this. In fact, contemporary scholars have occasionally said that Lactantius didn't really know his Bible at all. I don't think that's quite fair. There are a number of biblical references throughout the Institutes. Lactantius simply pairs those with what he sees as predictions from classical Roman sources as well. Both of them, in Lactantius's view, point to Christ. Does he have the firmest grasp of Christian doctrine of anybody of his age? Oh, no. No, it's not even close. But Lactantius's significance is less as an expositor and developer of Christian doctrine than it is as a synthesizer of a particular kind of Christian-Hellenistic hybrid that is, of course, going to be passed down to the emperors that he is teaching and will therefore have a massive impact on the church, because the church would be the church of the empire, from Constantine to Constantius and onward. There is, of course, more to the story than that. As we have already seen, the relation between emperors and bishops was often extremely freighted. And we cannot say that just because Lactantius told this story to his pupils, they all accepted it hook, line, and sinker, and then everybody in the empire accepted it the same way. It doesn't work like that. And yet, there is no denying the messy entanglement of religion, politics, and rhetoric in the life of Lactantius, or for that matter, anywhere else along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.